presume you all are as well. Uh, we have, we have a, this is going to be so much fun. So uh, we have two guests tonight. Uh, I'm going to introduce both of them. Please uh, join me in, first of all, welcoming to the stage. I'm going to do uh, Representative Pat Garofalo. He represents District 58B, who was first elected in 2004 and has served ever since. Uh, he is, uh, he serves on the, oh, look it. Okay, we're doing uh, jobs, growth, and energy, affordability, policy, finance. People can look up committee assignments later. That's fine. Um, All right, and then uh, uh, Representative Frank Hornstein uh, has the Minnesota House representative for District 61A, the district that you're in right now. Yeah, take that, 61B. He was first elected in uh, 2002 and has been reelected every two years ever since. Uh, I could go through the policy uh, or uh, committee assignments, but let's just say big welcome to Representative Frank Hornstein. So exciting. Okay, so... Um, uh, so thank you all. Uh, thank you both so much for being here. This is so intimate. Thank you. Uh, we're very close. Uh, this is great. And okay, that's the first time that's happened. Um, so uh, so very glad that you're here. You both uh, you both had a late night because the the session just wrapped up yesterday, and we're here uh, primarily to talk about. <laughs> The Sandpiper Pipeline, uh, which we're going to talk about, but I wanted to take just a minute at the beginning to sort of go over all of the things that the legislature got done. <laughs> Why don't you go first? Okay. Okay, and let's move on. Uh, so, no, that's not fair. That was cheap because uh, you there was a jobs bill or there was a there was a bill that you actually helped push. Uh, yeah, there's actually a lot of cool things that happen. First of all, thanks for having me here. This is actually a lot of fun. And uh, can you hear me well, now? Is that better? Yes, yeah. thank you. Um, so, no, like, uh, for, for 20 years, we've talked about the fact that veterans' pensions are taxed in Minnesota. And it's one of the few states that does that. And so now with this law that we're uh, hopefully the governor has signed, uh, all veterans, uh, their pensions will be tax-free in the state of Minnesota. And I think it's a pretty it's a cool way to value service. Uh, also, we uh, spend a lot of money on everything that Frank wants. I guess <laughs> is that a good thing? Yeah. So. No, but the um, yay. Oh, an exten extension of the angel investor tax credit. Some good reforms that are both going to help make the environment cleaner, but also lower the costs of energy. So I think those are uh, some nerdy reforms, but they're good ideas. And do you have sort of uh, do you have things that you like brought home and put on the refrigerator uh, with sort of a gold star on it? Well, there's a lot of things. I mean, we have a uh, tuition tax credit, uh, and uh, that's even for folks that have already graduated as well uh, to help pay back student loan uh, debts. And uh, we we also have a child care tax credit. We really need to get. Uh, uh, people uh, into the workforce and, and make sure that uh, folks are able to take care of their kids while they're working. That's a pretty basic thing. And, um, and there's some good things as well, but uh, real disappointed we didn't get a transportation bill done. So hopefully, Ooh, hopefully yes. we'll be able to get that. Uh, well, um, <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, audience, I'm going to just say, we're going to open it up for audience questions in the second half of the show. Uh, your outbursts don't come through on the a podcast version of the show, so just uh, just hold your anger till the end. They both have to exit the same way, so you can accost them then. Um, so, 
So uh, I do want to just ask very quickly a, a process piece because there's been so much talk uh, with both the session before this one and the one that just ended yesterday. So much stuff gets like left until the very last minute. And, you know, I'm an improviser. I, I appreciate sort of ha things happening in the moment. But, but I was wondering, it seems to not always work the best uh, as yeah. far as sort of legislative policy. So has anyone considered just telling the legislature that you end like a week earlier than you do so that like everybody's bills got had to get done yeah. a week earlier or we could just pass a law that says how about you do your shit now instead of later right we could do that is that, that a is that is that the technical language yeah it's actually in the revisor's bill right and no i think you know this is nothing new we've all the legislature for many years has always had a bad habit of working up against the deadline at the very end of session the difference is now with social media with web streaming you actually get to see it happening. So the if you look back in the mid-80s, there were some very chaotic ends to sessions where uh, at one point someone actually threw their shoe at the speaker <laughs> when they tried adjourning. Uh, so it's uh, it's the difference is that we actually have accessibility now. But it is, there's no doubt it's nothing new. It's just a, it's a process problem. But uh, unlike a commercial transaction where, you know, you go to buy and go and buy a car, you say, you know, you can just walk away from that transaction. You don't have to negotiate. Frank and I don't have that liberty uh, we have to reach an agreement, and unfortunately, uh, we, a lot of times people work up right to the deadline. Sad. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, okay. So let's talk. Uh, let's talk about what we're here. I somehow managed to pick like the one issue that the legislature seemingly didn't really do anything with uh, at all this session. Uh, so let's talk about Sandpiper Pipeline and talk about sort of uh, first of all. Uh, people, I think, it hopefully have been reading their program studiously before the show, uh, and they know everything about where it is. But just sort of give us the, the lay of the land uh, to start with, sort of what are we talking about when we talk about uh, Sandpiper Pipeline, and where are we right now in May of 2016 in the process around the, that proposal? Well, so there's actually a couple of pipelines. These are right. pipelines that are bringing oil through Minnesota uh, down to refineries in the south, and uh, some to the east. And they originate uh, in one is uh, called the Alberta Clipper. And I love how they, cha they uh, make up these names, right? The Alberta Clipper. It sounds so It's a storm, kind of isn't fun. it? That's a terrible you name know? for anything. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like a race or something. And, uh, and so that starts uh, in the tar sands area uh, of northern Alberta. And it's uh, hauling, you know, uh, very, very uh, polluting, dangerous, uh, in my mind, uh, uh, oil from Canada, and then we have the uh, sandpiper. That's kind of a nice one too. Sandpiper. I was going to ask why, and, uh, and I don't know if either of you know this. Why is it called sandpiper? A sandpiper is a bird, right. and it's a pipeline that right. goes partially underground. Do sandpipers go? Uh, this is sort of off topic, but I am very curious. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, we'd have to ask Enbridge Energy that. Um, you know, I think it's kind what do you, of Orwellian. What do you ask them when they come to yeah. you? You don't ask them about I, the I'll kind tell, of bird? I'll, well, I will tell them when I ask them uh, what, what we talk about. But, um, and that's actually carrying Bakken oil. That's, a, that's actually carrying even more oil uh, from the uh, uh, oil fields of North Dakota. Again, very, very uh, uh, intense oil, the, the volatile oil, uh, contributes to climate change. And that also is a different, that's another uh, uh, pipeline. The reason that we have to talk about them both together is that they're uh, uh, having environmental review. They're, they're reviewing the uh, issues and the environmental questions of these uh, uh, pipelines together before the um, uh, pollution, uh, the, not the Pollution Control Agency, the uh, Public Utilities Commission. And that's a whole other issue, but they're in the process of being reviewed by the state. And uh, so 
maybe around 2018, uh, there'll be a, you know, a final decision on this uh, environmental study. So that sounds great. They're being reviewed exactly as it should be working. Well, so first of all, it's important for people to understand that in the area of energy, unlike what you're hearing from a lot of the national talking heads and the cable TV news networks, is, is really good news in the area of energy. First of all, renewables are getting more affordable. Uh, what's happening is, is that you're saying now, yes, they're more affordable, but when it's not windy or sunny, I still want to be able to turn on my microwave. And so it's good news. Things are getting better. Also, in the area of efficiency, you take a look at the television you used 20 years ago compared to the one of now, you get a better experience, better clarity. It uses a fraction of the electricity that it used to. That's good news because the cheapest form of energy, cleanest form of energy, is the energy you don't use. And then third and finally is the shale gas revolution, the, the fracking stuff we're talking about, where now we just have an abundance of both oil and natural gas in the United States. And those are, those are good things because of natural gas. It's, it works really well with wind. Uh, if, you, if, it's not, if the wind stops blowing, you can't really turn a coal plant or a nuclear plant on right away to get it to crank out power, but you can with natural gas. And so it's very cheap. Uh, it's much better than uh, coal for the environment. And any one of those three things happening would be transformational. But the fact that all three are happening is a pretty big deal. And the cool thing is that um, with all this going on, uh, you're seeing a lot of new energy infrastructure being developed. And so contrary to what you may hear, the pipeline, new pipeline has been built across Minnesota. It's a virtual pipeline. It's the rail lines. There's no regulations. It goes through heavily populated areas. Uh, it's most expensive. It's more environmentally dangerous. And that's why we should build pipelines so we don't have stuff exploding in heavy, heavily urbanized environments. There's a but joke in here somewhere about gas and wind and braking. But I don't, uh, I don't know what it well, is. The fact of the matter is both pipelines and railroads are dangerous. Both pipelines and railroads are carrying hazardous materials. Both pipeline and railroad companies lobby us continuously to not regulate them, to not hold them accountable. And so it's not a pick your poison situation. Pat is right. We're getting more efficient. We're actually using less gasoline. Our cars are getting more efficient. We have an abundance of oil. The world is awash in oil. And this oil is actually going for export that's coming through these pipelines. And we don't need it. And we certainly don't need the risk that's entailed with this. So let me tell you a quick story about uh, uh, when I mentioned that these uh, companies uh, come to the Capitol and they did't want to be held accountable at all. I had a bill, uh, an oil uh, pipeline and rail pi uh, rail tr uh, freight rail uh, safety uh, bill a couple of years ago. And one of the provisions was simply to say, that if there is a spill or a leak or an explosion, some sort of problem, the uh, company would have to call the sheriff or the fire uh, service in the community where this problem happened within an hour to start advising them. That's all. They said, absolutely not. We can't do that. Then we said, let's uh, have someone on the scene within three hours. And they said, no, we can't do that. And then the other part of the bill was, we just want to know how you're going to clean it up. No, we oppose this. And so what happened was this legislation started uh, moving through the House of Representatives, and all of a sudden the pipeline companies got really upset. So they flew in these people. I was so honored that uh, people from Oklahoma and Texas and the American Petroleum Institute in Washington, D.C. Uh, flew in to try to kill my bill. And we have this meeting in my office, and, uh, you know, they're not particularly friendly, kind of steely-eyed and all guys in suits. And the guy from Oklahoma then finally says, what's your philosophy of oil? 
You know, it, it's, it's not oil, it's oil. And, and it, it, it sounds like a 400-level philosophy class at a liberal arts college. The philosophy of oil, open just for uh, uh, your thesis uh, students. But anyway, so I told him, there's a lot of it, and it causes climate change. And that's the problem. Climate change is the challenge of our generation. And so they will go to such great lengths. And, and I just want to say one more thing, Tane. The reason I'm, that... I've, I'm, I've taken a back seat yeah, to my yeah. show, so, so that's fine. So, so, no, the reason why this spill response time is so important is that Enbridge, the company that's building these pipelines, had the largest inland oil spill in American history in Kalamazoo, Michigan in 2010. And here's how they responded. Some, the, some alarm went off in Canada or Houston or wherever their, their headquarters are. And they said, oh, wow, we have a spill. They started putting more oil into the pipeline. That was their response. And then, you know, the, the, the federal government did a whole investigation, and they found that the, the company just wasn't ready for this. And so this is the company that we're entrusting with these two pipelines through very, very sensitive environmental areas, the headwaters of the Mississippi. And they didn't even want to back off of their route until uh, a, a judge, a court case, asked them to consider two additional routes in the environmental review. So this is what we're dealing with, with oil transportation safety. So why are you pro-secret oil spills at the headwaters <laughs> of the Mississippi? Yeah, right. No. <laughs> um, you know, and again, you just want to take a look at the, the facts surrounding this and taking a look at the issues. The, if I understand some people believe that if you don't build pipelines that somehow it's going to keep the oil in the ground. And that's just not true. Uh, what is happening is as the process has been bottled up and these pipelines have not been built, uh, oil is still coming out of the ground and it's still moving through Minnesota. It's just going by rail versus pipeline. And that virtual pipeline of going through rail is a much more dangerous situation. It has serious public safety concerns. You're far more likely to have a spill. Whereas when you transfer it via pipeline, you actually bring economic diversification to the state of Minnesota because these pipelines are taxed. In some of the poorest counties in the, in the state of Minnesota, this generates badly needed property tax revenue, which they can use for public infrastructure and uh, assist in economic developments in their area. In addition, it can be, it's, a, it's a form of uh, transportation that's just going to be safer. So I, I mean, you did say uh, you know, that it's not a matter of picking your poison, but I, I mean, I kind of want to push back on that a little. Why, why isn't it a, a well, I mean, what's, what is, what's the third way? Well, and, uh, yeah. The Environmental Quality Board actually did a pipeline study, and they said actually pipelines are even more dangerous. Again, I think they're both bad, and the, the ultimate way to make uh, uh, this system safer is to use less oil and to, and to keep it in the ground. And, you know, when President Obama made his decision of stopping the Keystone XL uh, project, and there was actually a big leak on that uh, a couple of months ago. You know, he said that the, actually, you know, they really looked at the data. It's not going to be that great economic. It's not this, there's a myth that this is some sort of big economic engine that's going to just transform our economy. One of the reasons he said no, in addition to the climate implications, is that it's it, it really exaggerated claims about, you know, how wonderful these things are. And it's very, very high risk. And, you know, they're still cleaning up this mess in Kalamazoo, Michigan. And could you imagine what would happen if on next to the headwaters of the Mississippi we had a leak like that? It's simply not worth the risk. So instead of just having this false debate about pipelines and trains, and I can tell you that uh, any time we try to 
uh, uh, tell the railroads, well, you know, you got to uh, be a little more transparent with the first responders. We made a little progress on that last night, and I thank that we, on a bipartisan basis, at a quarter to 12, we passed the amendment that I had on oil train safety. But, you know, there's just a lack of transparency in both of these uh, industries, uh, and pushback, constant pushback, you know, when we try to hold them accountable. So it's not an either-or. But, and Frank, Frank how, does not is building, how does not building the pipeline keep the oil on the ground? Well, it's, uh, the, the issue is that if you don't have any uh, way to transport it uh, and you're, this is part of an energy uh, plan where we're really, really focusing on using less and being more efficient and really acknowledging the fact that 30% of greenhouse gas emissions come from burning oil in our cars and trucks. This is a huge thing. We focus on the electric utilities and climate change. That's really important. But transportation is the second leading cause of greenhouse gas emissions. We can't wait on climate change, folks. It's real. It's proven by science. It's getting worse. We've got to figure out a way and to address Frank, this I issue. I see your bleeding heart. I feel good. But how does it keep the oil in the ground? The I do think is it doesn't. It doesn't keep the oil in the ground. Well, I it, think all it does is it moves it through Minneapolis as opposed to a pipeline. Well, I, again, this is uh, – we have safety issues with this. We have environmental risks with this. But we have to get at the root cause, which is our – continuing addiction to oil. So it seems like you guys are, uh, th there's a disconnect here somewhere, uh, like two oil cars that aren't connected, and it's a terrible tragedy. Uh, so, uh, because it does seem like you're suggest. I mean, I, I get what he's saying to some degree, which is uh, this, it is moving at this point, and so on the one hand, I could imagine someone saying, oh, well, you know, if we're going to move it anyway, uh, move it in this pipeline. On the flip side, isn't that sort of like the, uh, saying to sort of like a drug addict, like, listen, you know, you're really far gone on that heroin stuff, so here's, here's meth. Uh, this will be better. Uh, I mean... That's an interesting analogy. Yeah, um, no, I would not say. I mean, first of all, Frank, how'd you get here tonight? Uh, by bus. I don't uh, have a car. And, and what did I that bus transit. run on? What did that bus run on? Uh, well, I think it was a hybrid electric bus, but um, I I'm not sure. Now, Frank, uh, I'm now not Frank, sure. tell, tell them how I got here tonight. So, by the way, one, one thing I just do have to say here in the middle. He's a great guy, and we're actually really good friends, even though we're mixing it up now. Are you filibustering right now? He drives a Tesla. Pat Garofalo drives a Tesla. And he took me for a spin in it the other day, and it's beautiful. Okay. So you, I, I assume you had a point. You weren't just looking for an opportunity well, no, to I mean, brag about your Tesla. No, I mean, no the... Uh, Actually, I was. Yeah, it was all about that. No, if you take a, if you take a look, okay, we, uh, the reality is most people get around from gasoline. There's no doubt that we, there's a great opportunity in energy storage. We're moving to electric vehicles. We're converting uh, diesel vehicles to natural gas, which are cheaper and cleaner. A lot of these things are happening, but there's no way we're going to transition our economy in a two- or five-year time frame. Take a look at the transition from horse and buggies to automobiles. It took 30 years, and the transformation from a oil-based petroleum economy as we decarbonize our energy sources, which is where the science is going, it's where the data and the investment is going, it takes time. So in the meantime, saying that the next couple of decades, people in Minneapolis got to roll the dice, we got to have oil cars going by target field, I just think it's stupid. We shouldn't do that. Let's put it in pipelines. It's safer. It's better for the environment. And by the way, we got a pipeline up there right now, line three, which is it's old. They're actually reducing the pressure. They're so worried it's going to leak. We can't get the Public Utilities Commission to approve replacing the pipeline with a new pipeline. So I just think, again, 
unfortunate part of politics right now is a lot about science denying, and that's one of the elements but, of but, it. But, the, but, here's, but don't, don't deny this. The data shows that there's more leaks in pipelines. Again, there's problems with trains. I don't – believe me, I don't defend the railroad industry. But <laughs> the uh, – there are more leaks, the data shows, with pipelines and explosions. So you can't, you know, the, the, the question isn't which one, which one is worse or better. The question is what are we going to do with our energy policy? And you are right, Pat. You know, you're modeling, you, you know, we, we have a Tesla. We have energy efficiency standards now for cars. The data shows we're using less energy in the transportation sector. We're awash in oil. We don't need to be you know, transporting even more onto the world market. So, you know, we're heading in the right direction. You started off optimistically, and I agree with you. But if we're going to make the changes we have to make to alleviate climate change, it's going to have to, we have to do better. And we're not going to do better if we continue to our oil addiction. So I'm worried I'm going uh, to have you all agree with each other too early in the show. Uh, <laughs> so, because it sounds like you actually have similar endpoints to some degree uh, at some point. It's just maybe that uh, how, how do you get there and how quickly do you get there? Science and technology make things better, cleaner, and cheaper. I'm sorry, but the email has saved more trees than the Sierra Club ever will. Okay? That's just a reality of it. And if you take a look at where the progression is going, we are producing more energy with less pollution, and that's continuing to go forward. If, if Frank, if you're truly concerned about greenhouse gas emissions and uh, increased carbon dioxide emissions, the single greatest threat in the ener energy industry right now to increase CO2 is the early decommissioning of nuclear power plants. Replacing them with natural gas and wind generates more carbon dioxide than nuclear power. We're a little off topic, but... Who cares? But why not? Nuclear power will just make everyone agree. So, um, <laughs> well, I, I would love to have a nuclear power debate if we want, but that doesn't make a lot of sense either because we don't know what to do with the waste. We have the most toxic waste possible being stored on the banks of the Mississippi River in the middle of an island called Prairie Island, and we don't know what to do with it. It's stacking up and stacking up. It's the most expensive way to generate energy, folks. So let's, again, this idea that nuclear power is going to save us, that's a false argument, too. No, but I think your, your overall point, though, if you look, there's billions of dollars going into research and development for alternative energy. Things will continue to get better. I know at one time, coal was better than chopping down forests, right? And now we're moving away from coal. Uh, this evolution is going to continue. It's just part of the human spirit to do things better. So I'm very optimistic about the future, particularly in the area of transportation and electric vehicles. Well, on that note, I'm going to pause because we have to open it up for you all in the second half, but we're going to turn it over to the cast first. Right this moment, though, can you do a big round of applause for our two guests, Representative Frank and Pat Garbo? We're going to sit right there. Okay, so if you have a question... Uh, I, I just have to say very quickly, as folks are ch uh, uh, following up here, every show this season, we have a different guest artist uh, who is with us. And you'll see our, our guest artist uh, over here in the corner tonight, Lupe, is uh, here. And uh, at the end of the night, we're going to show what uh, she's been live sketching throughout the evening. So we're very excited for that. But uh, right now, if you have a question, please raise your hand, and I will race towards you. Uh, I'll just come here and then over there. And uh, yeah, All right. Um, my question is for Pat Garofalo, and my question to you is um, on fracking. So with all the input that goes into fracking and the little output and all the toxicity that comes with the process of fracking, do you actually think fracking is a good thing? Uh, well, anytime you're doing any sort of extraction, whether it's minerals, mining, uh, liquids, the geological pressure is what forces it up. 
And so you can do it the right way or you can do it the wrong way. Uh, clearly down in Oklahoma where they thought it was a good idea to take all their wastewater and just shove it back into the ground a couple of miles underground hasn't worked out too good because they got earthquakes, right? That's not smart. But I do think uh, particularly uh, with the standards that are being used in place like the Marcellus, uh, Eagle Ford, and then up in the Bakken areas, it is a good idea because they have not just one, not two, but actually seven levels of redundancy. The issue primarily is when that, when that geological pressure goes through the water table. And if you just rely on one concrete tube or one steel tube, then you're going to have problems because it can spill right into the water table. But if you build in that redundancy and you cap it right, I do believe it can be done effectively. And it's certainly uh, doing, being done more responsibly than the current oil sources we get from out of the country. Okay. Uh, did you want to? Okay. Uh, talk to me about tobacco taxes. Uh, there was a, uh, uh, so in this tax bill, which I voted against yesterday for that very reason, uh, we, in a time of surplus, in a time of surplus, I was one of 12 that voted against it, Pat. You, you, voted, uh, ag you <laughs> voted against it because you're Frank Hornstein and you want higher taxes and bigger government. That's why you voted against it. I voted against that bill because in a time of a $900 million surplus, giving a $30 million tax break to big tobacco was not a good idea. Yeah. What? Wait, no, that's not fair. Uh, <laughs> no, did you want me to rebut it or not? I don't, well, you can't rebut it by putting your hand over the microphone. Oh, no. uh, I mean, the money doesn't go to big tobacco. It, the money goes to smokers who are not going to have an automatic increase in their taxes. So, I don't know, isn't that, that uh, the, again, the audio hey. audience can't read your eye rolls. Yeah, uh, like, I mean, come on, like, you picked, like, the softest target in the tax bill. What am I supposed to say, you know? <laughs> I had a lot of smokers reach out to me and say, hey, can you just keep the, pack, the tax at $3 a pack instead of three fifty? I don't mean, it's, I mean, taxes automatically rise, you know, being inflated and going up are generally bad policy, generally. Okay. Well, yeah. They, your heart's really in this. All right, I'm going to move on. Um, uh, up here, there was a question. Yes. So if the oil that's going in the pipeline is getting sold internationally, as I understand it, what gas are we actually using in Minnesota? Um, so, well, first of all, um, the, the, we, the federal government just lifted the oil export ban until fairly recently. It was actually illegal to export American oil because we were importing so much of it we viewed it as a precious commodity. So Frank's comment about that is not exactly accurate because we're, that's a process that will be beginning. But primarily what happens is that oil is brought to uh, the Chicago region, the Twin Cities, and out to the East Coast where it's refined for gasoline. That's where it's brought through. Um, we have pretty minimal processing facilities here. You've got Flint Hills. Uh, you've got the uh, in St. Paul Park, the other refinery, Marathon, I believe it is. But primarily we're just a conduit to move this stuff through. And again, it's, you know, we're going to be using oh. this for quite some time. It, all of a sudden, I feel like I'm being used, like we're just a conduit for yeah, someone else's I, joy. I, uh, <laughs> but it, it's accurate, yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's the whole problem with this. But look, we, the, the issue is that uh, we, we are at the, the big oil companies and the big oil lobbyists lo lobbied very hard to lift that export ban because we have, that's, there's a world market and a lot of this oil is going overseas. So that's why it's, it's really a, a huge problem. I mean, we're wrecking the environment, you know, for the uh, profit of a few big oil companies. It's yeah. not right. You know, actually, this is, I'm actually going to praise Washington for something they did right because what they did is, yes, they lifted the oil export ban, 
but they did it in exchange for a 10-year extension of the production tax incentive for wind and for solar. That was the trade-off. And so the consequence of this is that you're seeing now the price of oil going way down, which is good for consumers. It stabilizes the market. But more importantly, it foreign policy-wise positions our country much better. Uh, it's no secret that presidents of both administrations, Republican and Democrat administrations, have had to defend a lot of people in the Middle East and spend a lot of money stabilizing the region uh, because we, we're addicted to oil. At least by being independent, being able to generate our own energy, we're in a much better way uh, situation. And using that money for the incentives for uh, wind and solar I thought was a reasonable compromise. Can I just push back? I, I, I'm going to get uh, – we've both talked now about – uh, big oil and big tobacco. Is there small oil and small tobacco, like <laughs> local oil? No, it's interesting, though, because the renewable energy industry is getting more established now. So now you have people calling for big wind and small wind. So it's a sign the, energies, the, the industries are maturing because people are starting to hate them. Well, we have a bike lobby, which I call Big Bike. <laughs> okay, uh, other hands. I, I was going to look up here before I go back down. Oh, right there in the front rows here. Okay, here. I'll hand it. So in this era of cheap gas at the pump, why can't we get a 10 cent per gallon gas tax, gas tax to fix our roads and bridges? Well, <laughs> I strongly support that. And, um, you know, I, I agree with you, and uh, you know, gas goes up 50 cents, uh, 60 cents, and people don't you know, think about the fact that you've got people making money off of this, you know, the, the middle folks, the, the whole chain of people that profit off of this. And then when we want to give a few pennies to uh, the state to fix our roads and bridges, it becomes something so onerous. And um, so I, you know, look, uh, this is a dynamic at the Capitol that I think is very, very problematic. That we, you know, that somehow this, the gas tax has been just named as such a big bogeyman, and then we have a, a proposal to raise license tab fees, which is probably just as bad. And you had some folks in the Republican Party really embracing that. I think even the Speaker had an increase in uh, tab fees as part of a, a possible solution to this. So um, we ought to raise the gas tax. We should raise tab fees. We need uh, six hundred million dollars a year to fix our roads and bridges, and we also have to invest in uh, public transportation, which wasn't a part, even a part of the bill that I voted against yesterday, the transportation bill and the bonding bill, which was terrible. So uh, to have that kind of transportation policy. So was that was a very thoughtful answer, but bogeyman? Isn't it bogeyman? Like, I always thought it was the boogeyman. I don't know what the hell the yeah. bogeyman is. That was a really scary guy. Yeah, yeah. The answer to your question is two years ago, the Democrat, and I want to let you know, Representative Hornstein, what he's telling to you today is exactly what he believes in his heart. Sometimes people vote one way and they come out and say a different thing. What he just told you is absolutely his position and he agrees with it. But you should know, two years ago, the Democrats had total control of the state. Governor, House, and Senate. Did they raise the gas tax? Of course they didn't. Why? Because it's horrifically unpopular. Whether it's a good idea or not, uh, and, elected, and elected officials are very reluctant to do things that are unpopular. So, I, I mean, as a de it's a declining revenue source. I don't even pay the gas tax anymore. Vehicles are becoming more fuel efficient. This is going to be a greater problem going forward. But I'll just tell you that uh, if the public is against you on an issue, it's very hard to lead on it. And the Democrats, I mean, when the Democrats well, were in total control, they were very reluctant to do it either, and they didn't. Well, then would, would there be some sort of uh, mileage usage fee, potentially? Well, that's, the, that's the ultimate solution. 
but again, we, we can't even get a task force to, to, you know, to, to meet and talk about that. There's so much resistance to it. Well, so we can't keep saying no to funding our transportation system because this is ultimately good for the environment and good for our economy. Uh, I think a good solution, a reasonable solution, is you take a portion of the existing sales tax on everything, take a portion of that and dedicate it to transportation. In 2005, Representative Hornstein and I were part of a bipartisan coalition that voted to do that, where we used the existing sales tax. It's stable, it's predictable, it's reliable. Now, it's not a tax increase, but uh, it uses existing sources, and you don't need to worry about coming back every four or five years to increase it again, unlike the gas tax. Okay, uh, other questions? Uh, uh, I'll come back here. I'll come back, I promise. Um, uh, okay, I'm going to come over there. I see lots of hands. So right here, this gentleman in the green shirt. So uh, aren't we, like, uh, eventually uh, going to hit peak oils sometime in the future? Like what uh, Richard Heinberg was talking about? And, and Bill Hill. Yeah, yeah, well, actually, there was a resolution in 2000 and 2008 where the House of Representatives voted on peak oil, and obviously, uh, since then, fracking has kind of made that look stupid. But, uh, I mean, I, I do think that, there, obviously, there's a certain amount of natural resources that are available, but the evolution, I mean, there's a lot of great things happening with electric vehicles. Uh, interestingly enough, little factoid, uh, last session... Out of the, gov the DFL governor, the DFL Senate, and the Republican House, only one of those chambers passed a vehicle for, or a passed a law, proposed a law, and passed it for uh, electric vehicle incentives. And if you think it was the DFL governor or the DFL Senate, you'd be wrong. It was the Republican House that did it. Well, the DFL governor can't pass a. He can, but he can propose it. He could propose it. Yes, and he didn't even enough. do that. Uh, okay, and so Frank, am I right about that? Yeah, well, we had the exact. Yeah, This is a funny story. We had the exact same bill when I presented it. The Republicans were ranting and raving for a whole hour, nine amendments, and then and then when uh, Pat presented it, oh, it was like boom, thirty seconds. Do you guys ever do that? Do you ever say like, Pat, I want uh, it's Frank. I want you to pass this bill, but it won't work if I if I suggest. <laughs> neither, oh. neither of us are dumb enough to admit it in public, especially on tape. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just say that um, we, we well, actually the thing I'm most proud of the session is that in a bipartisan way, me and a guy named Dan Fabian uh, passed an electronic waste recycling bill, which is very, very important, you know, to update our e-waste laws. And you know, it, it actually shows that we can do some stuff together. And building these relationships is actually critical to that. Yeah. Okay, so I have several hands, and I'm almost out of time. So. I used to remodel houses, and I know that if I wanted to conserve water, I wouldn't put in lots more bathrooms or I wouldn't put in a sprinkler system. Right now, we have a worldwide glut of oil, and we have a de demand dropping of gasoline products. So it seems like this is a good time to say no new pipelines because we have more oil than we need in the world, and we have less demand. Oh, that wasn't a question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, what's your reaction? Uh, okay. Right there, right there. Well, okay. I mean, uh, do you want to react? Well, I was going to say, if you want the benefits of more domestic production as opposed to international production, you can't do it without the energy infrastructure being here. Historically, we've relied on Saudi Arabia and other countries, and we've used their energy infrastructure. If we're going to have more of our energy produced domestically, whether it's oil, whether it's wind, whether it's natural gas, whether it's solar, you need to, you need to build that energy infrastructure here. And no one likes anything being built near them, so that's par for the course. Okay, uh, I'm going to do here, and then I have to get 
So earlier it was said that there's no way we're going to transition out of an oil economy in two to four years. But so I, I was part of a college group that was able to go to COP21 last fall. And there are cities around the world that are way bigger than us transitioning in five to ten. So I want to know what's happening to prepare us for that. Because if we don't prepare for it, it's never going to happen. And we're going to be one of the last states in the country to do it. And that's not fair. So I want to know what's happening right now. Like this seems like a great way to not build a pipeline and to start transitioning us to wind and solar, which can be stored. So I want to know... What is happening right now to prepare us for that? So just two quick things. One is the real innovative work on this is going on at the local level. You know, the city of Minneapolis is doing all kinds of things. You know, transportation, there's a whole uh, climate change uh, initiative that municipalities are doing. In Paris, in COP21, I heard there was just great energy with local folks. But let's be very clear. Let's be very clear. In this country, we have climate denial run amok. And we cannot make progress, and you know, I'll, I'll be a little partisan here, when one party is basically, their, their platform involves denial of climate and the climate change, and that affects our public policy. We had a $400,000 grant that was denied in our uh, legacy bill, and this happened just uh, yesterday, a wonderful grant about uh, resiliency. The University of Minnesota, Mark Seeley, that climatologist that you hear on public radio, uh, you know, he had a wonderful team that was going to do resiliency. It was recommended, and yet because the majority, all except for Pat, by the way, voted on the record last year that climate change is not real, is not caused by humans, is not uh, proven by science. So as long as we have climate denial, as long as we have climate denial run amok in Washington and St. Paul, we're just not going to make progress beyond the local but level. But here, here's the thing, though, okay? You talk about progress, okay? Uh, you compare, look at the energy sector at our carbon dioxide emissions right now, and you compare it to 10 years ago, we're less. And I don't mean on a per capita basis, it's actually less. And primarily because we've been decommissioning coal and we've been replacing it with natural gas and wind. Now, the, the shale gas revolution, it's a really big deal, and the good news is, is that natural gas is kicking the shit out of coal and other legacy energy sources, and it's a good transition fuel. The problem is it's also kicking the shit out of nuclear, and if you're concerned about greenhouse gas emissions, if we shut down the Prairie Island facility and replace it with a mix of natural gas and wind, it's like adding a million new cars to the roads in Minnesota, and I don't mean Teslas. I mean like gas mobiles on the road, so if – if we're going to have a focus on that, and that's truly our goals, realize where the real threats are to oh, it. I, so I do want to push just a little bit, though, because I don't, I don't feel like either of you really answered her question, which is about how, what, what are the steps that are being taken to sort of move us towards this future that I think you both sure. to some well, degree have said uh, is something that you both envision. So three things the House Republicans tried doing last year, which we could not get Democrats in the Senate or the governor to agree to. Number one is put more investment into energy storage because inter the, the, as wind and solar continue to get cheaper, the problem is not going to be the cost. It's going to be reliability. When it's not windy and it's not sunny, we still want electricity. Energy storage is the holy grail of that. We solve that issue, we're, uh, every, you'll, you'll be able to run on a 100% renewable economy. We're well positioned as a science and engineering, a smart state, so we thought that was a good idea. Um, second thing is we had incentives for electric vehicles. Uh, you talk about the issues of environmental justice. When, when heavy diesel vehicles are polluting the atmosphere in, on I-94, it's not floating out to Farmington or the suburbs. It's those communities that are right around there. Let's get more electric vehicles on the road. Let's transition diesel vehicles to natural gas. 
That's a smart thing to do. And by the way, it saves money. Third and finally, not all renewable energy incentive programs are produced the same, are, are equally valuable. State of Minnesota is projected to spend $150 million on something called the Made in Minnesota Solar Program. It sucks. And I mean, it totally sucks. It doesn't reduce pollution. It doesn't create jobs. We could spend less money, repurpose it on the things I just mentioned. It'd be better for the environment, better for consumers, and would position us better for the future of a 21st century economy. Those so are so three we things we, we're trying to do. So we need a little reality check here. The National Republican Party and the Minnesota Republicans in the legislature, one of their main goals is to roll back President Obama's clean power plan, which is really absolutely critical for us to address the coal issue. And so uh, that's happening. Uh, we had, uh, you know, in, in your bill, uh, uh, Pat, you know, there were efforts to, you know, roll back our, uh, our solar, uh, community solar efforts. There were uh, uh, things in your bill that uh, I think took aim at e even efficiency. So this is the theater of public policy. And as long <laughs> as our public policies, as long as our public, it's sometimes a theater of the absurd at the Capitol, but um, <laughs> as long as uh, our public policies are taking us in the opposite direction of addressing climate change, then we're really in, in, in uh, a, big, uh, a big problem here. And that's what's happening in Washington and in St. Paul. Make no mistake about it. So, okay, I'll try one last, this is my last question, and maybe this gets us a little bit back to this uh, visioning the future as opposed to uh, the fight that we're in right now, which is uh, we have a whole audience full of people here who aren't just here for the free beer, uh, but are here because they care about uh, this stuff uh, in one way or another. So if, if we accept my premise from the beginning that you know you both imagine at some point we move towards this much more uh, sustainable, uh, uh, less carbon future, what, what should the people in this audience be doing either in contacting their legislators or in their own individual lives to to be moving towards that, to be making that happen. Well, the, the first thing I would say is, and I sincerely mean this, I'm not just saying it because he's here, for those of you that represent, that live in this district, you have an excellent state representative in Frank Hornstein. <laughs> you really, thank you, thank you. Um, there's, there's a that lot. That endorsement will be on the top of your next yeah, mailer, yeah, I'm that's sure. Fine. <laughs> here comes the primary <laughs> challenge from the left, yeah. Frank Hornstein <laughs> says he's a progressive, but. <laughs> But he like he's liked by Pat Garofalo. You know, so I can just see the negative ads yeah. coming. Yeah, up. no, but um, you know, because there's a lot. There is, I mean, the country is just polarized. I mean, we get this. We haven't even talked about this Donald Trump stuff, and it's just. I was going to ask you, but you've no. been saying no comment for the last six, yeah, like six well, weeks. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and that's what I'll stick with. Yeah, it's no comment. Um, so, but I mean, I think just going forward, you know, just. There's a lot of good information that's actually nonpartisan, bipartisan to collect stuff. Just realize that sometimes uh, the people pushing stuff, they're, um, they're trying to sell you something. And again, be aware of the facts, be aware of how complicated the energy area is in terms of engineering, and that the evolution of technology, the investment in technology, it's all good news. It's good, it's good news for America. It may not be happening as fast as you want it to, but it's good news, and the future is very bright. So I will just say, you know, my background is in community organizing. I want to thank Pat too. We've been, you know, we uh, have been friends since 2004 when I first met him when he was elected. I've gone down to Farmington. We toured some transit facilities. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, there folks are in Farmington. Facilities in Farmington. Folks in Farmington. No, yes, there are. <laughs> but folks in Farmington, you've got a great state rep. Farmington. 
So, um, but, but here's None the of thing. You are my, from Farmington. My, Shut up. <laughs> my, my, my background is in community organizing, and we have some wonderful community. I see people here from the Sierra Club, from MN350. You know, folks, we are up against some very powerful forces that are pushing back on efforts to uh, address climate change. And I think that it's very, very important that we become involved and engaged in grassroots organizing, in grassroots politics. And that's really, I think, uh, we've had some incredible victories, but we have some incredible challenges. So if you're concerned about the set of issues we talked about, I'd say join an organization and get involved. Ladies and gentlemen, can we do a big round of applause? This has been absolutely fantastic. Representatives Pat Garofalo, Frank Hornstein, they were up till midnight last night and then they came out tonight. So big round of Thank you for listening. This show was recorded live at the Bryant Lake Bowl in Minneapolis. If you're interested in coming to an upcoming show, you can find all those details at www.t2p2.net.